we're going to get right into the message because we got a lot to get through. We got to get through nine plagues this morning, nine in 40 minutes. It took us two and a half years to get through one, so we got to get started, okay? <laughs> Over the last three weeks, we've been walking through the book of Exodus in a series we're calling Discovering God. And the heart behind that series is that the things that we go through, the circumstances of our lives are awesome opportunities for us to discover more about God and to discover more about ourselves. And over the last three weeks, Pastor Brian has done a magnificent job of unpacking the beginnings of the Exodus story. If you missed a couple of weeks, don't worry about it. I'm going to catch you up right now. In our story, our main character, Moses, has had quite the journey. He is a Hebrew born into slavery, and born with a hit out on him. His people, the Israelites, had immigrated to Egypt some 400 years before his birth, and they had grown so numerous in their numbers that the king of Egypt decided that they were a threat to his kingdom. You will find that growth is often a threat to the insecure. Like they were okay with you growing until you outgrew them. But I'll preach that another time. Pharaoh puts out a hit on all of the baby boys that are Hebrews in his country, and Moses' mother, Jochebed, decides that the best thing to do to keep him alive is to put him in a basket and send him down the longest river in the world. I'm talking about the Nile River. Now, I have been on the Nile River. There are crocodiles, black mambas, Egyptian cobras, and mosquitoes with all kinds of diseases, not exactly the place that we would put an infant. And by God's providence, Moses is found by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, and he is adopted into the Egyptian royal family, which is miraculous, but it complicated his life. It gave him the complication of identity. It meant that he was too Hebrew to really be Egyptian and too Egyptian to really be Hebrew. And this identity conflict comes to a head when he decides to murder an Egyptian slave master and becomes a fugitive in Egypt. And like most of us, when we're starting to deal with identity conflict, Moses runs. He runs away and perhaps searching for some new identity. He marries a woman that is neither Hebrew nor Egyptian. He marries a Midianite woman, has two children with her, starts a business. And just when he begins to settle into a more peaceful life rhythm, God introduces himself to Moses. And in this introductory conversation, God gives Moses an impossible task. Moses... I want you to go back to the country, the country that you're on their FBI's most wanted list, and I want you to say to their king, to their president, to their pharaoh, pharaoh who is the head of the state and the supreme religious leader, I want you to say to the one who makes laws and wages wars and collects taxes, I want you to say to the one who has no checks and balances. See, in our country, if you want to get something passed into law, it's got to go through the House and then the Senate, and somebody's got to vote and somebody's got to sign it. But I want you to say to the one to, to whom he can speak, and it just is. I want you to tell him to let go of the centerpiece of his economy and power structure. I want you to tell him to let my people go, and when he asks you why, tell him, because I said so. <laughs> oh, and Moses, 
When you go, I'm not sending you with the military. I'm not sending you with military-grade weapons. I'm not even sending you with any money. All I'm sending you with is your brother. You'll, you'll find that God often asks us to do the hard thing in partnership. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you've been working so hard toward a thing. You've been toiling, you've been laboring, you've been researching, and that thing hasn't taken off, and you're wondering why. Maybe it's because you've been trying to do it by yourself, but I'll preach that another time. God says, Moses, I'm sending you with your brother and your walking stick. And Pastor Brian talked a lot last week about how this was difficult for Moses, this circumstance, this task. It was hard for Moses. And some of you can really relate to how Moses must be feeling because you in your own life have an impossible task. For some of y'all, just, just, just raising your particular family is an impossible task. Just your particular way with children. I see some of them in kids' way. <laughs> is an impossible task. Just being married to who you're married to. If they're sitting next to you, just look at me. Just look at me. I want you to walk out of here, Mary. <laughs> For some of you, just being married to your spouse is an impossible task. For some of you, just waking up in the morning with the way addiction sits on you and anxiety sits on you and depression sits on you, it is an impossible task. Some of y'all know what it is to have an impossible task and inadequate tools. And the issue for Moses is he keeps running into moments when God's method is inconsistent with Moses's expectations. Moses does Everything the Lord tells him to do, he goes where God tells him to go. He says where God tells him to stay. He performs the miracle that God tells him to perform. God says, throw down your staff, it'll turn into a snake. Moses does all of this, and the text says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, that still, somebody say still, still, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, I don't care how much faith you think you have, at some point, if you live long enough, you will have a moment where God does not meet your expectations. When you have been obedient, when you have been faithful, when you have been integrous, when you have been true, when you have done your part, and still, somebody say still, still the outcome is not what you expected or anticipated or wanted or feel like you deserve, and you will find yourself discouraged. I knew it would be hard. I just didn't know it would be this hard. I knew, I knew it would be long. I just, I didn't know it would be this long. I knew, I knew it was going to require faith. I just didn't know how much. But one of the things that I find most encouraging about the Exodus story is that it displays the omniscience of God. That is to say that nothing but nothing but nothing but nothing catches God by surprise. It caught you by surprise, but it didn't catch God by surprise before the disaster hit your house. God knew about it. God had a plan for it. God had provision with it because nothing catches him by surprise. And this is particularly comforting when you know that God is on your side. God is on your side. God is team you. And the real good news, and it's your fill in the blank if you're following with us online or on the app or just taking notes, the real good news is that there is no enemy that God cannot defeat. I, no, y'all didn't get excited enough for me. I said there is no enemy 
that God cannot defeat. What that means is, Satan, you can lobby every manner of hell against me. You can throw everything you got at me, and still I will win. Still I will come out on top. Still I will be victorious because there is no enemy that God cannot defeat. Listen, Pastor Brian, who is a much better man than me, last week he stood on this stage and he told y'all that he's not a big fan of talking trash. And I respect it. <laughs> but Pastor Brian and I didn't grow up in the same neighborhood. <laughs> and in my neighborhood, talking trash was a means of survival. Because when the bully would come riding his bike up past your house, talking about how raggedy your mama's car was and how ugly you were and how cheap your tennis shoes were, you had to learn how to stand flat-footed on your porch and talk back to him and let him know about himself because if you did not respond to the things that he said, he would come back the next day and say something worse and he'd come back the day after that throwing rocks at you and he'd come back the day after that ready to fist fight you and so we learned in my neighborhood how to stand flat-footed and tell the bully about himself and some of y'all have been letting Satan come by your house and say any old thing to you and you've started to believe the things that he said to you. I just came here today to tell you that talking back is a means of survival and you may need to look your situation in the face and declare God's truth to it. You may need to look at the enemy in his face and tell him about himself. Satan, all you do is lose. The Bible says you were cast down from heaven. All you do is lose and all I do is win. It doesn't matter what you throw at me, I can be in the middle of a hurricane with my heart broken and my body in pain and my God is so good to me, he will take that situation and work it out for my good. All I do is win and sometimes we have to let the enemy know that. Amen. The story of Exodus is a story of discovering God and one of the central characteristics that is revealed to us about God in this story is his power. I think sometimes we forget who it is that we're talking about when we say Yahweh. Yes, he is kind and good and sweet and loving, but he is also powerful. He is also the almighty, all-powerful God to whom nothing is out of reach and nothing is too hard and nothing is impossible. I think it's easy to forget that especially when we live in a world with so much technology. I mean, I can pick up my phone right now and be in contact with somebody in Taiwan in 30 seconds. I think it's easy to think that that is real power, but I don't care if you have the nuclear codes. It is but a grain of sand in comparison to the power of God. This is what the Bible means when it talks about having a fear of the Lord, a respect for God. And when you understand who it is that you're dealing with, who it is that you're talking about, who it is that you're in a relationship with, it changes everything. And so while Moses may have been surprised and discouraged by the fact that Pharaoh would not let the Hebrew people go, the almighty God of unmerited and limitless power was not. God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, God tells Moses, he says, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. He goes on to say, he says, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. Now, this detail about the condition of Pharaoh's heart 
is an important one. It's such an important one to the story that it is mentioned 20 times between chapters 4 and 14. Now, 10 of those times, the text says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But 10 of those times, it says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, wait a minute. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Like, isn't that counterproductive? Like, like is he setting Pharaoh up for failure? Is, or is God setting Moses up for failure? Like, what's going on with this? And in order to answer that question, we really have to understand the idiom, the, the language being used in this text when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And what I need you to understand is that when it says that, it's not talking about emotions. Today, in today's language, when we describe the heart, when we use that language, we're often talking about emotions, right? If I say my heart is broken, I'm telling you I'm sad. If I say my heart is full, I'm telling you I'm proud or I'm, I'm joyful. But in this text, where, when it describes the heart, it, it's talking about the heart being the seat of the will being the central location for intellect and reasoning and cognitive capacity and as the birthplace of our actions. So when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it is saying that Pharaoh is intentionally suppressing his ability to reflect, his ability to self-examine, his ability to, to think this situation through, to surrender his biases, and to do what, what makes the most amount of sense. Because Pharaoh, letting the Hebrews go, that's what makes the most amount of sense. In light of what we saw in chapter 7 last week, where even when Pharaoh sees his witch doctors and his magicians cast down sticks and turn them into snakes and imitate the miracle of God, still Yahweh's snake was bigger and ate up their snakes. Reason says, Pharaoh, at the very least, I'm going to take this conversation seriously. In seminary, I took a class studying cults. And on the course reading list was the 1956 classic, When Prophecy Fails. And in the book, the psychologist author describes what happened to a UFO cult. Yes, they're making cults around UFOs now. I know it's a lot, but stay with me. In the book, he talks about this UFO cult who believed that they were receiving these messages from alien beings from this planet called Clarion, and that a part of the messages that they were receiving were these prophecies that large parts of Lake City and the United States and Canada and Europe and Central America were going to be destroyed in this massive flood before dawn on December 21st, 1954. And the people of this cult, they believed that th these alien beings were going to send a mothership to rescue them before the flood happened. And so the people in this cult, they left or lost their jobs. They ended their studies. They cut ties with family members and friends who weren't a part of this cult. They sold their property and gave away their money, all in preparation for being taken up on this mothership. And, of course... December 21st, 1954, comes and goes, and there's no great massive flood, and no mothership comes, and instead of admitting their error when this mothership didn't come, the people of this cult, they decided to double down on what they had believed, and they sought frantically to convince the world that they had been right, and they started predicting more prophecies and things to explain away why the mothership didn't come and to explain away the reality that no flood happened. 
In the world of psychology, this behavior is called the backfire effect. It's this weird notion where being corrected makes some people feel more correct in their original, faulty, disproven belief. And all of this really just points to the reality that we as humans tend to think that whatever we think is right. And we're not above a little bit of embellishment of reality to fit that belief. Now, it may be easy for you, sitting here today, who are not a part of a UFO cult, I hope, <laughs> you may be sitting here thinking, operating in the backfire effect, that's the territory of the less intelligent. But what I find is that the backfire effect is actually very human. And you and I can easily lean into it. And in our story in Exodus, we see Pharaoh operating in the backfire effect. We see him doubling down on this idea that Israel belongs to him, on this position that he is a god, even though the evidence is contrary. And so often, when we read the story of Exodus, we see ourselves as Moses, don't we? As the, the noble, good one sent to do God's hard work. Or we read the story and we see ourselves as the children of Israel, the, the ones oppressed by the ungodly culture and system. But I wonder if maybe, just maybe, sometimes we're Pharaoh. Sometimes we are so attached to the idea that we are right, that we harden our own hearts to reason and logic and self-examination and critical thinking, new information and the possibility that maybe God is doing a new thing. Often when we tell the story, we say that it is the story of God freeing the Israelites. But I will submit to you that it was almost the story of God freeing Egypt. God is revealing himself to Moses. He's revealing himself to Israel, and he is revealing himself to Egypt, but Pharaoh refuses to see it. He refuses to see God, and he refuses to perceive what God is doing now. And I think this is because for humans, often when God does a new thing, it's difficult for us. Because what happens when, when God's plan for your life is disruptive to your plan for your life? What happens when God's plan requires you to think in a new way, to do things in a different way than you used to do them or than you're most comfortable doing them? What happens when God's plan puts you in a position of uncertainty? For Pharaoh, freeing the Hebrews would force him into a situation of uncertainty. What will happen to my economy if I lose millions of hours of free slave labor? I would be in an uncertain position. You'll find dictators don't really like uncertainty. But if we're honest, neither do we. What happens when God's plan for your life forces you to reimagine and re-engage with the people around you? Pharaoh had no concept of a free Hebrew. What does a free Hebrew look like? When every Hebrew I've ever seen has been bound and shackled and chained and, and bears the whips and the scars of being enslaved, I don't know what a free Israelite looks like. But God's plan for him was forcing him to reimagine those people. And what happens when God's plan for your life forces you to reimagine you? 
and requires you to let go of some of the harmful ideas that you may have inherited. We, we talk about Pharaoh like he's just inherently wicked, but let us not forget Pharaoh inherited his wicked ideas. From the day he was born, he had been told he was Pharaoh. From the day he was born, he saw people scurry out of his way when he walked down the hall. He, when, when he took a breath, people would have trays of food and whatever he wanted in front of them. He had been told this his whole life that he was, that he was a god. And the challenge is that in order to free the Hebrews, Pharaoh would have to acknowledge not only is he not a god, but the people that he had always thought to be rightfully his actually belonged to somebody else. In fact, he would have to acknowledge that he, Pharaoh himself, actually belonged to someone else. And so what if God's plan for your life means giving up what you feel like is rightfully yours? You feel like you're owed that apology. Maybe you are. You feel like you're entitled to that resentment because that person hurt you, and so you, you have the right to hold on to it. But what if God's plan requires you to put some of that down? You know, the trouble with, with obedience is that it requires a surrender of power. You will find that people at the top of the power totem pole in a society often struggle the most with the relinquishing of power and autonomy. And so what happens when God's plan for your life requires you to admit, I was wrong. I was wrong. I made a bad choice. I made a bad decision. I made a mistake. I didn't have all the information. I was wrong. About two weeks ago, we were having a young adult service downstairs in the grounds, and I noticed a young man walk into the service that uh, had never been to one of our services before. He had been to some of our social events, uh, but he had never been to one of our services. And I didn't think anything of it when he walked in because we happened to have a guest speaker that night. I figured he's here to hear the guest speaker. And at the end of the service, we're doing a, a prayer call, and I have my prayer team. We're at the front of the stage, some of our pastors, and we're, we're ready to receive people who would like to be prayed with. And the young man, he comes up to me. So I get excited. I love praying for people. I'm ready. I'm like, here we go, Lord. We about to do it. Let's go. And he comes up to me, and he says, I have a confession. I get more excited. That's right. I'm about to walk him through grace. I'm about to tell him no condemnation in Christ. We're about to do it. Let's go, Lord. And he says, no, no, I have a confession for you. I thought, that's, that's a little odd. We're not Catholic. You don't really have to do the pre Anyway, I'm ready to walk him through it. And he looks at me and he says, when you became the pastor at the Bridgeway Young Adults, he says, I didn't like you. That's odd. We've never, we've never met. We've never talked. But okay. He says, I didn't like you. I thought you were the worst for the job. And I told people that they should not come to this ministry because you were leading it. And then that boy looked me dead in my face and he said, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And he began to prophesy to me after that and speak life over me, and he began to tell me that I was anointed and that I was called to this ministry and that I was doing what I was supposed to do, and God was proud of me. And what he did not know was that the two weeks previous, I had been wrestling with all of that. 
I had had a couple of hard conversations about the way I preach and, and lead, and, and, and I was feeling really hurt by some of those conversations, and I was feeling misunderstood and judged, and I was wondering if I was even supposed to really be here, and then I was mad at myself for even feeling all of that because, you know, getting a little criticism over a message that you give, that comes with the territory. That's new pastor stuff to be hurt by. That I've been doing this a long time, and I was feeling all of that, and when that boy said those three words, I was wrong, it was was healing to my spirit. It healed me. He thought, he thought he was coming to reconcile himself to me. No, he was coming to reconcile me to my calling and my ministry and my job and my church. And all I need you to understand is that those words, I was wrong, there is liberty in them. And some of y'all are only three words away from being set free. Three words. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, leave your gift at the altar, go and be reconciled. If you don't hear anything else I'm saying, whoever it is that popped into your mind that you need to go and say, I was wrong too, go do it. Go be reconciled. Go and fix it. Go say, I'm sorry. You will free yourself. You will free them. There is liberty and the ability to admit that you were wrong, and Pharaoh is not able to do it. Pharaoh is not able to do it. And so 10 times the text says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and 10 times we see God reinforcing the posture of Pharaoh's heart, a posture of absolute irrational resistance. And so Pharaoh says, I'm not letting him go. And God responds. God proceeds to demolish Pharaoh's country, his economy, his power, his relationships, his home, his health, his ego, his pride, and eventually his future. And he does this through a series of plagues. We're going to look at nine of them today. The tenth one is in a class all by itself. We'll look at that next week. But God unleashes these plagues onto Egypt. And as you read this, the plagues are so intense, it's easy to, to look at it and think, oh, God is being real mean right now. God is being very intense. But I actually think that these plagues speak to the levels to which God is willing to pursue us, the, the levels to which the things that he is willing to do to come and grab us, the, the reality is that God is willing to do whatever is necessary. Somebody say, it's necessary. It's necessary. He's willing to do whatever, whatever is necessary to come and get us and to knock down the idols in our lives. And I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I am not saying that every time something bad happens in your life, it's God knocking down idols or trying to get your attention. Sometimes bad stuff just happens because we live in a broken world. But in this case, God is responding to the reality that Pharaoh refuses to submit. So we're going to look at nine of the plagues. I'm going to summarize them for you because it's like three chapters. That's a lot of text to read. And we're going to move through them pretty fast. We're going to start off with the first plague in chapter seven. It is the plague of the Nile being turned to blood. Pharaoh is warned about this plague. He's told, if you don't let the Israelites go, the Nile's going to get turned into blood. Pharaoh doesn't listen, and Aaron puts his staff in the water, and it turns into blood. Now, there is debate about whether or not it turned into literal blood or whether or not there was some sort of mineral impact that reddened the water and made it toxic. But either way, it was visibly striking, and it was completely unusable. 
And Egypt's witch doctors, in response to this miracle, they imitate the miracle. They take more water and they turn it into blood, which is stupid because if your country's water source doesn't have any water, it doesn't make a lot of sense to take a little bit of water that you have in a jar somewhere and also ruin that. I would have fired the whole team, but that's just me, <laughs> personal. The text says that Pharaoh's heart became hard. And what I want you to pay attention to as we go through the rest of these plagues is how each plague escalates in intensity and in impact. Each one gets worse. And what this tells me is that there didn't have to be 10 plagues, that Pharaoh could have repented and turned his life around after plague number one or plague number two or plague number seven. What you're going to notice is that after each plague, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And still, still, the fact that there are 10 plagues speaks to the reality that God still gives Pharaoh chance after chance, warning after warning. So as we look at the story of the plagues, I want you, yes, to see the God of power, but I need you to also see the God of mercy. The second plague in chapter 8 is the plague of the frogs. Again, Pharaoh is warned, if you do not let the Hebrews go, the land will be overtaken with frogs. And again, Pharaoh doesn't doesn't listen. And so the land is taken over with frogs, and the wizards perform the same sign. It, it blows my mind that they couldn't see that all they could do was make the problem worse. And so Pharaoh agrees. Pharaoh says, I will let the people go and sacrifice outside of Egypt if the plague is taken away. And God relents. God removes all the frogs. They all die. But later, Pharaoh changes his mind and his heart is hardened. And what you're going to notice very quickly is a familiar pattern that Pharaoh has. Pharaoh is warned about the plague. He doesn't listen. The plague comes. Pharaoh says he will let the children of Israel go. God removes the plague. Pharaoh changes his mind. You're going to notice this pattern again and again and again. Here's what I need you to hear. Pay attention to your patterns. Your patterns tell the truth. I don't care what your lips say. What do your patterns say? Pay attention to your patterns. By the time we get to the third plague in chapter 8, in the middle of chapter 8, God ups the ante because this plague comes without a warning. And this is the plague of the gnats. And, and it's all these little bugs that flew throughout Egypt, took over Egypt. And this plague is significant because it struck at the Egyptian religious system. You see, the Egyptian theology was predicated on the, the need for cleanliness. And so in order to go before the Egyptian gods and offer your sacrifices, you had to be ritually clean and your sacrifice had to be ritually clean. If I am covered in gnats and my sacrifice is covered in gnats, I can't come and offer worship. And so this plague stops the entire Egyptian sacrificial system. And by the time we get to the third plague, the magicians in Egypt, they start to figure out we're dealing with something we haven't dealt with before. They say in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, they say, uh, this is the finger of God. This is something that we haven't dealt with. And it just speaks so much to how hard Pharaoh's heart was, that the, the pervasiveness of his hard heart, that he wouldn't even listen to his own advisors. These are your people. This is your team. They're telling you to do something different, and he won't listen. He con continually rejects and resists God. The fourth plague at the end of chapter 8 is the plague of flies. Pharaoh is warned about it. It comes, and he suggests that they sacrifice outside of Egypt, but then his heart is hardened. What is interesting about the fourth plague is that it is the first plague that we see God explicitly protecting Israel from. 
We don't know how they experienced the other plagues, the previous ones, but we know that they were specifically protected from this one. And as I, I think about that, I wonder how that impacted them to witness, literally witness God warring on their behalf while protecting them from what he's doing and they're still in bondage. All three of those things were happening simultaneously. It speaks to the reality that with God, multiple things can be happening at the same time. You can be actively being delivered and still be in your situation. You can be being brought out and still see the shackles around your ankles. And there comes a time where in your faith, you're going to have to be able to trust the character of God's heart, even when you can't understand the anatomy of his hand. Even when you don't see him doing it, you're going to have to lean in and say, God, I trust that you are doing a big thing, even though I can't see it. The text says that Pharaoh sees this happening, and he promises to release the Israelites in exchange for relief from the plague. God pulls the flies out. Pharaoh changes his mind. Same thing happens with the fifth plague, which is the death of the livestock. But when we get to the sixth plague, things get a little interesting. The text says that Aaron and Moses grab dust and throw it up in the air, and boils break out on the skin of all of the people and the cattle. The text says that, that the boils were so intense that the, the, the magicians of Israel could not even come before Moses and Aaron. The reason this plague is interesting is because this is the first time we see God move against the people. He has moved against the land, he's moved against the water, he's moved against the religious system, he's moved against the livestock, but this is the first time that he moves against the people. Here's what I will tell you, it is dangerous when your ego and pride put other people in danger. When your ego and pride put other people in a compromising position, and again, we see God reinforcing Pharaoh's heart. The seventh plague is the plague of hail. And again, we see God being so merciful. He gives Pharaoh an extended warning before this plague. He says, Pharaoh, I could have moved my hand against you and cut you off from the earth. He says, but I raised you up that you may proclaim my name. He's telling Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you think this is bad, we're just getting started. Don't play with me. I'm God. And Pharaoh doesn't listen. And the text says that God, that uh, Moses stretches his staff to the sky and a thunderstorm begins. But catch this, the storm has thunder, hail, and fire. This is how you know it's supernatural. When have you ever seen fire and ice falling from the sky at the same time? It don't do that in Tahoe. <laughs> and again, we see Pharaoh lean into the same pattern where he, he makes a promise, I'll do it. If you take away the plague, God takes it away, and Pharaoh changes his mind. The eighth plague is the plague of the locusts. Again, Pharaoh is warned, how long will you harden your heart? Even Pharaoh's servants are asking him to be obedient to God at this time. And so Pharaoh comes, and he tries to make like a deal. He's like, well, well let's just let the men go. The issue is that God is not interested in partial obedience. Sorry. God is not willing to compromise regarding your heart. God says, I want it all. I want it all. I want your heart. I want your spirit. I want your mind. I want your attention. I want your focus. I want your energy. I want your effort. I want it all. Give it all to me. And again, we see Pharaoh lean into the same pattern. The ninth plague to me is the most intense one. 
before we get to the 10th, which we'll talk about next week. It's the plague of darkness. It's in chapter 10, the latter half of chapter 10. And the text says that Moses stretched his hand to the sky and darkness fell across the whole land except for the portion of the land where the Israelites were living, the, the land of Goshen. And this is so symbolic to me of what happens when we reject God's will and way in our lives. We are in the dark. And some of you may be, be, may be here today and be wondering, why, why am I always stumbling? Why am I always falling? Why am I always tripping over things? Why do I always get hurt? It may be because you're operating in the dark, because you are operating outside of the will and way of God. According to the text, it looks like that there probably wasn't even the ability to create artificial light. Like the Egyptians would be in their house trying to light candles and matches and, and lanterns and lamps, and, and there was no light. There is no light without God. And this would have been such a blow, again, to the Egyptian religious system because the most prominent God in the Egyptian pantheon is Ra. Ra is the sun god. But Yahweh says, no, 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 the sun belongs to me. And the text says that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is a lot of plagues to live through. It was a lot of plagues to preach through. And the reality is that the, 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 the plagues are all really about Pharaoh's heart. Listen, my message today is for two groups of people. And if you're a little complicated like me, you might be in both groups. My message is for one group of people who <laughs> you've been in bondage, you have been shackled, you have been in chains, and you've been crying out to God asking, Lord, please set me free from this. Whatever it is, the sickness in my body, the sickness in my house, the complicated relationship, Lord, please set me free from this. You've been crying out and begging for liberty, for freedom, for deliverance. God's message to you today, he says, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I am actively doing it. I am moving heaven and earth to get you where I want you to be. And I know it feels like it's been a long time. It may feel like it's been 400 years, but I am doing it. I am moving things that you can't even see, that you don't even understand, to get you where I want you to be. And God is saying, I need you to hold on. God says there is no expense that I am not willing to spend to come get you. God says I am doing it. Somebody needs to be encouraged knowing God says I heard you. I heard you when you cried out. I heard you. And I'm doing it. That's group one. Some of y'all in group one, though, are also in group two. Folks like me who it's real easy to get caught up in your own way of doing things in your own ideas, in believing that you're right. For some of us in this room right now, we have made idols out of other things in our lives and, and God is calling to us. For some of us, God is calling us to cast down those idols to cast down the idols of our ways of doing things, to cast down the idols of our political parties, to cast down the idols of what feels good, to cast all of that down because God says, I am God all by myself. And God is calling us out of some ways that we inherited. That way you, you deal with conflict, God is saying, I'm calling you out of that. 
that way you navigate in the world. God is saying, I'm calling you out of that, and I'm calling you into something better. My heart breaks for Pharaoh because he did not understand that God was actually offering him something better. And my encouragement to those of you that may be in group two with me would be to listen for the ways that God may be trying to get your attention. Listen for the ways that God may be trying to move you into something better. The reality is, y'all, God is sovereign. Always has been, always will be. And he is going to have his way in your life, no matter what. And so we should make it our endeavor, our life's endeavor, to perceive the power of God, to perceive his divinity as almighty, and to allow our lives to be in alignment with his. And I would encourage you, whether you find yourself being a Moses with a hard, impossible task, or a child of Israel, somebody who's dealing with some sort of spiritual oppression, or whether you're Pharaoh, and that heart is a little bit hard, allow your life to be in alignment with God. Let me pray for you. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. I thank you, Jesus, that you are all-powerful and almighty. I thank you that there is nothing that's too big or too hard for you. I thank you that you are willing to move heaven and earth to come get me. I thank you that you will allow me to go through some difficult times to call me to yourself and to, to call the man out of the boy in me. God, I thank you for your plan. I thank you that it's good even when it's hard for me. And Father, I'm praying for my friends here. I'm praying for folks who have an impossible task, for folks who have things that are really, really, really hard to do, that you've called them to do. Lord, continue to minister to them as you minister to Moses to get them to the place where they can be successful in the thing that you've called them to do. I'm praying for my friends who are here today who are like the children of Israel and they are in bondage and they are in turmoil and they are in oppression, Lord, and they need your freedom. Father, I pray that you would break off chains and that you would let folks go. I pray that you would start today right here in this room. And Father, I'm praying for folks who are like me and can have a hardened heart. And I pray that even even right now as I pray that you would take those hard hearts and soak them in living waters that they may become soft and malleable and open to what it is that you're doing. And God, what I'm thankful for is that no matter where we are, you are still good, you are consistent, and you love us. So Father, I lift all of this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.